Today, I want to talk about the courage of calling. The courage of calling. And before I go any further, I, I need to define this word calling. Calling is a strong inter-impulse towards a particular course of action. I, I think of heart. You know, ha, have you ever been so compelled? Have you ever felt something, you know, within your heart that you just knew you had to do what you had to do? It, it, it was deep down in your heart. But yet, especially when accompanied by conviction of divine influence, that spirit. And I've often had this conversation with people. Sometimes we get spirit and heart confused and mixed up. And let me give you a, an illustration of what I mean by this definition from a personal illustration. It was around the late 1980s. I think it was right around 1989. I had been pastoring at a church in Clifton called Valley Chapel. I was a youth pastor there. I'd been there for four years. And one spring, out of the blue, I get a phone call. Brother Phil Howard? Yeah. This is Brother So-and-so from Cape and Bridge, West Virginia. We have a church down here, and we're looking for a pastor. And, and we know of your ministry from when you used to minister in Winchester, Virginia. And I'm like, what's up with this? It's a little church that we have in a hunting lodge. And we have a great group of people, but we're in search of a pastor. And we just feel led of God to ask you and your wife to come down, preach, be interviewed, candidate to be the pastor. What do you, I mean, out of nowhere. And I felt this strong inner impulse that was probably pride. Wow, they're interested in me. But honestly, I can't say that at that moment, I really sought the will of God. Spirit. So with my heart, Heather and I and Bonnie at the time, we went down to Cape and Bridge, West Virginia, and we preached on a Sunday morning. We interviewed. We had an awesome service on Sunday night. We went back to a friend's house that we were staying with, and I get the call saying, Brother Phil Howard, this is Brother so-and-so. We want you to know that you've been elected as our pastor. However, there was one board member who didn't like the process that we used and really told everybody in the congregation that it wasn't right. We just had a choice of one person. We, we need two other candidates, so we have a choice of who we can vote on. So they rescinded the vote. And we just want to know, will you still be considered a candidate? And he was very, he says, you know, this, this guy's, you know. So I said, sure, I'll leave my name up. I started to think about that. Have you ever played a game with someone and they made up the rules as you went along? And it's just not fun. 
So I said, you know, I better start doing some investigating. So I call a couple of my friends from that Virginia, West Virginia area, because we were down in Winchester, and, and I said, hey, you know anything about this guy? And I finally found out that, number one, this deacon accused me of preaching from a foreign Bible because I used the NIV and not the King James. So now we're, you know, stepping a little lightly. And I understood that, you know... If you're candidating for a church and there's not unity on the board, hello, that's a red flag. And then they said that, yeah, this guy kind of controlling, you know, he's, he has a lot of influence. When, you, when someone says a man has a lot of influence in the church, you know what they're saying? He, he influences them with his, his money. So I actually got a call a week later from this guy, this deacon, and he says, now... Brother Phil Howard, I just want to straighten some things out. The rest of the board says that if you get elected, that you're going to need a place to stay, an apartment or something like that. But I don't know why, because on my farm I have this trailer, and you and your wife and your child can stay there rent-free. How many know nothing's ever free? And I'm starting to get like, ooh. Now I'm praying. And no longer just being led by my heart. Two weeks later, I get the call. The other two candidates have finished speaking, and you have been elected as our pastor. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but at this time, I decline because it's just, I don't believe it's God's will at my time, at this season in my life, to come. And they, okay. And that was on a Monday. That Saturday, 6 o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. True. It's a true story. Hello? Brother Fieldhauer? Yeah. This is sister, and I'm not going to say her name. This is sister so-and-so. Are you sure it's not God's will for you to come? I said, ma'am, I am sure. Well, then I just have one more thing to say to you. I go, what's that? Well, if you get swallowed by a whale, don't say I didn't warn you. True. So sometimes we have to be careful where our heart leads us if it's not the Spirit leading us. Do you hear what I'm saying? Well, when you read the book of Esther... It almost reads like a fairy tale, and they all live happily ever after. And and it's almost easy to read the book like a fiction. But I want to remind you that what we read in the book of Esther, the 17th book of the Old Testament, is a historical account of an actual event that actually took place, and these characters are real. And Esther... As far as I'm concerned, few people are more courageous than Esther. Now, in the book of Esther, what's happened is it's easy to focus on Esther all the time, but there are so many subplots that take place in in the book of Esther. And and before we get to Esther this morning, I, I want us to take a look at Mordecai. A closer look at Mordecai as we talk about the courage of calling. Mordecai, Scripture says, had a cousin, Hadasha, 
whom he had brought up because she neither she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features. And Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now, we don't know the circumstances or the situations of how her mother or father died. But we do know that Mordecai's father and Esther's father were brothers, which makes Mordecai and Esther cousins. And obviously, Mordecai must have been a lot older than Esther. And when her parents had died, she was left as an orphan. And it was Mordecai who, in his heart, maybe divinely directed, stepped up and stepped in to take care of Esther as if she was his own daughter. Think about that for a moment. On Wednesday night, we had the lighters with us missionaries to Bulgaria, and they had these twin boys with them that they had adopted from Bulgaria. Give them all the credit in the world. And as I was preparing for this message, and as I was thinking about our own congregation, you know, I have to realize that there are many among us who have stepped up and stepped in as foster parents, as adoptive parents, to help a child who didn't have anyone else. And, and can I say, that's the call of courage, and, and we, we should acknowledge the adoptive parents and, 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 and the foster parents who have stepped up and stepped in for a child who's in need. Can we just say, yeah, man, that's a call. And we honor you for that calling in your life today. Secondly, I want to talk about Mordecai's calling, conviction, not to bow down. All the royal officials at the king's gate, and Mordecai was an official at the king's gate, knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down and pay him honor. Think about the courage. Haman, the king's second man in control, second in charge, he gets upset because Mordecai won't bow down to him and refuses. So what does Mordecai do? Mordecai is so upset. I mean, Haman is so upset because Mordecai won't bow down. Haman goes before the king and devises a plan that all the Jews would be destroyed, killed, annihilated. And all their possessions, young and old. As I said, there's so many 
subplots in the, in the book of Esther. It's easy to overlook the courage of Mordecai. Part of courage is risking your reputation of what people will say about you, what people think. But listen, at the end of the day, courage is doing what's right, regardless the circumstance, regardless the consequences, or regardless the cost. That's courage. Now, some of you may say, what's the big, why wouldn't he bow down? What's the big deal? Especially if it costs the lives of his people. Why wouldn't he bow down? For the same reason, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego wouldn't bow down. Worship the Lord thy God only. And bowing down would be a sense of worship to man and not God. And Mordecai had this conviction, had this calling that I'm not going to bow down. I don't care how big your ego is, Haman. I'm not going to bow down. I worship God and God alone. Now, if you let your fears dictate your decisions, many of us would bow down to popular opinions, political correctness, the latest Trending hashtag. We'll bow down to whatever is most popular or whoever is the most famous or the most influential. We don't bow down to the things of this world. But here's the catch. If you don't know what you believe or what you stand for, you'll start bowing down to things you don't even know anything about. Mordecai knew that God was a jealous God and there should come none other before. And he was not going to bow down. Now, I want to flip the coin for a moment and I I just want to take a look at Haman for a moment. Let's psychoanalyze Haman. How big, how fragile must one's ego be to get the king to make an issue a governmental um, mandate that everyone must bow down before you when you pass. Well, there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's one word for that. Insecurity. (laughs) He was a very fragile, insecure. A man who wanted power Therefore, he had the king make a mandate. Everyone passes before me, king. They they just need to bow down. But here is this one man who wouldn't bow down. And we may think to ourselves, well, Haman's a little crazy, isn't he? (laughs) But yet, how many of us want people to bow down to our every whim and wish? (laughs) We all have control issues, let's be honest. We, we all don't like it when someone doesn't go along with us. But here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is he, Haman was so bothered by this that he builds a gallow for Mordecai to be hung on. 
Now, there's something interesting in the book of Esther. Not only are there a lot of subplots that take place, there are what I call ironic reversals. Next week, I want to go through all the ironic twists, ironic reversals that take place in the book of Esther. This is one of them because the very gallows that Haman built, well, his own ego stabbed him and he was hung on the gallows that he built for himself. But let me just, for a moment, twist the narrative, if you will, because I, I, I believe someone needs to hear this. Don't let one person ruin your life. And that's what was happening to Haman. He was letting one person ruin his life. And I would say to you, don't let one person ruin your life. Don't let that one person live in your head. Don't let one situation, one mistake, one failure, don't let that one thing Ruin your life because we have a redeeming God who forgives us and redeems us and saves us. So many people are living in their head with that one mistake, that one failure, that one person who, who, who gets in their head. It's not worth it. And if you don't get over it, you're going to find yourself like the bad guy in the book of Esther. Haman. Fast forward, Haman. Chapter 3, verse 7. Appears before the king. And they take the purr. A purr is a lot. And here's another reversal. Purr. The lots that they cast turns into Purnum, which March 7th, the Jewish people will be celebrating. We'll get into that next week. But they take the lot and they cast it. And the lot shows that on the 12th month, Adur, the 13th day, this mandate to kill all the Jews would be carried out. Think about that. Now let's look at the call. The courage of calling. In regards to the courage to grieve. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done. When Mordecai got knowledge that on the 12th month. The 13th day. The Persians and the Medes were to carry out this mandate that Haman went to the king with that all the Jews were to be killed. Scripture says he tore his clothes. And let me ask you a question. Wouldn't you tear your clothes if you were responsible for the killing of all those people? Listen to me. How did this all come about? This all came about because 
Mordecai in his integrity would not bow down to one of the king's officials. As a result, a mandate was given for all the Jews to be, wouldn't you be wrestling with guilt a little bit? Wouldn't you be questioning, did I do the right thing? Maybe I should have bowed. But God says don't. Maybe I should have compromised my position for the benefit of my people. But I didn't. And I'm sure that inside there's a lot of layers that go on. He tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Putting on sackcloth and ashes was a form of ancient grieving. And here's another subplot that fits into the book of Esther that I I don't want to overlook for a moment because there's not enough teaching on grieving today. Putting on sackcloth and ashes is actually admitting and identifying and processing the pain. Admitting, identifying, and processing the pain. And listen, if you don't process the pain, you'll become a pain. I know from firsthand experience, hurt people hurt people. When my mom passed away, I did a terrible job at grieving. I didn't process the pain of the loss. And I became a pain. And I remember sitting down for dinner one night, hearing my wife tell me these hard words. You need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody. Because I started to realize... That I didn't deal with loss well. I tried to cover it up. I tried to ignore it. I tried to suppress it. And it became to own me. A couple things I want to say about grieving. Number one, it takes courage to grieve. Especially in a culture where we're not Supposed to grieve. Get over it. They're in a better place. And that's true. But it's still a loss. Secondly, it takes courage to go to counseling. And I remember the courage of walking through a door into a professor or counselor and sitting down and saying, my wife says, I've become a pain because I haven't processed the pain. (laughs) Tell me what's going on in your life. 
And what I see Mordecai doing here is processing the pain for the loss that he's going to cause. And you know what I've, I've realized in life? I told the men yesterday, yesterday in, in, in our group study, it's okay not to be okay. There are seasons in life, and there's some seasons in life that are hard, and it's just okay not to be okay. We come to church, and we have to put on our happy face, our, our spiritual face, and say, hey, brother, how you doing? Fine. But inside, man, it's, we're not. And it's okay not to be okay because people hurt. There are seasons that take place in life where it's like a gut punch, man. Something takes place. You hear some news, and it's like, oh. And during those seasons in life, man, when you come to church, it's okay not to be okay. It's okay to say, Pastor, man, I'm going through a season of loss. I'm going through a season of hardship. I'm going through a season where my, my child's driving me crazy. I'm going through a season where my husband and I aren't just getting on. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to say, hey, I got some problems. I need prayer. Mordecai could have just said, well, I'm just doing what God asked me to do. It's his problem. But no, he grieved and wept bitterly at the gate. Sometimes you have to work through it. On, you, you, you have to go through the process. Now, what happens is people come around. They always want to make you feel better. What does Esther do in verse, in verse 4 here? Esther hears of Mordecai in sackcloth and ashes. And what does she do? She sends him some clothes. She, she said, hey, get off your sackcloth. Here are some clothes. Put on. And honestly, we think we're helping, but we're not. Because we have to let someone go through the process. And sometimes in our helping, we're only hurting to try to get the person through the process quicker. Now, at some point, we have to get through the process or we're going to be languishing the whole rest of our lives instead of flourishing. But that's where counseling comes in. And what does Mordecai finally do? He reaches out to Esther. Can I say this? In this journey called life, there are seasons that you can't go through by yourself. You need the help of others. You need a community. You need prayer partners. So, Mordecai goes to Esther. Listen, I'm responsible for this edict. I'm responsible for the killing of the Jews. You're the only one that has access to the king. You need to appear before the king. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, day or night. I will go. I and my maids will fast as you do. And when it's done, after this three-day period, I'll go into the king and I'll inquire, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Whoa. You go, Esther. 
We need more courageous people like Esther, don't we? Just real briefly, Scripture tells us 30 days have passed since Esther was called to go into the king. The only way you could appear before the king is if you were called. And here's Mordecai telling Esther, listen, risk your life. It's for such a time as this. we got to save our people. And even though the penalty is death if you go in without permission. Secondly, think about this. you got to confess to deceiving the king. He, he didn't know. When you won that beauty contest, he didn't know you were a Jew. Now you got to go in and confess that you deceived the king and tell him that who you really are, you're a Jew. And there's a, a, there's a plot to kill your people. And now you got to go in and, and also not... Not going in at his invitation. You're going in and and telling him that you deceived him. And you want him to reverse an irreversible law. Because whenever the king makes a law, you can't reverse it. And the law was that on the 12th month of the 13th day, the Persians were to kill the Jews. That's an irreversible law. And not only that, you're opposing his second man in charge. You're asking and and you're going against the one he appointed. And and that would be a serious blow to the king's pride. This guy who I appointed as second in charge, you're telling is opposing and wants to kill. and, And now, I mean, it's just disaster. And between... Chapter 4 and chapter 5. There's three days of silence. It's almost like it's the last episode to the first series. And there's a cliffhanger. And you got to wait till the fall for the second series to come out. You've been there before. And you're just waiting. Worship team, you can come. And for three days, there's silence. There's fasting. There's praying. And it seems as if God is inactive. But I'm going to show you next week, during that three days of silence... God was more active than you ever thought. There are moments in our life, there are seasons in our life where we think God is not active, but God is more active during those periods than you ever know. I'll share that next week. But during these three days, I can't help but think they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. And Esther's strength was being renewed with courage to go in on behalf of her people. But I can't end it there. I need to fast. I need need to fast forward because there's someone sitting home today that may need to hear this online or someone sitting here. Chapter 9, verse 1. Remember I said there's a lot of ironic reversals that I'll go over next week in the book of Esther. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, 
the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out and all the Jews annihilated. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were overturned. The tables were overturned and the Jews got the upper hand on those who hated them. I can't help but feel there's someone today who's in need of a season where the table needs to be overturned. I can't help but think today that there's someone sitting here, sitting at home that is in need of deliverance. The table needs to be overturned. I can't help but think that there's someone who maybe got a a report concerning your health issue and God today wants to overturn the table maybe there's a relationship problem maybe maybe there's someone in your life that that has cut off relationship from you and and, and you're in need of help I can't help but think that today could be the day when God overturns that table the table is overturned in your favor I can't help to think but maybe there's someone suffering from a habitual sin And today is the day of deliverance where God and the tables will be turned. I can't help but think that maybe there's a relationship between a husband and wife that hasn't been going too well. And today the tables will be turned. I can't help but perhaps you're in a season and this season has lingered so long. You just want it to get over. Maybe perhaps today is when that season is turned. Would you stand? And would you just begin to worship? And as we begin to worship, Pastor Bonnie mentioned that to kneel down before the king is an act of worship. And maybe today in your life, you're in need of deliverance. You're, You're in need of a situation. You're in need of a season where the tables need to be turned. I want to invite you to this altar. I want to invite you down front to kneel before the Lord. And as we worship, perhaps today is the day, like on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar, that the tables were turned. Thank you, Jesus. Jesus.